I'm Sebastian Terry, and this is Win the Day with James Whitaker. You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, this is the number one podcast to help you win the day every day. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go. Welcome back to Win the Day. If this is your first time here, we sit down with some of the world's true change makers to give you all the tools, tips, and strategies to win the day every day. And boy, have we got a treat in store for you today. The quote for this episode comes from Will Smith and says, being realistic is the most common path to mediocrity. Being realistic is the most common path to mediocrity. And that's been one of my favorite quotes for a long time, but I saw it on our guest's Instagram page the other day, and I was like, you know what? That has to be the theme of today's episode. So I'm here coming at you direct from our Los Angeles studio with my good mate, Seb Terry, and we're going to blast that mediocrity mindset once and for all. Before we get his beautiful mug on here, I'm going to give you a quick overview of some of the very cool things he's been able to accomplish and some of the most significant moments he's had from his brief time on the planet. In his mid-20s, Seb was traveling overseas when he received a phone call that changed his life forever. One of his best mates had passed away at the age of 24. That tragic moment made Seb ask himself a simple question, am I happy? Am I happy? And the answer was a resounding no. Immediately after, Seb wrote out a list of 100 things he wanted to do, which he hoped would transform his life, and it's done exactly that. Now, more than a decade later, Seb has been diligently hunting down all the goals on the list and empowering others to do the same. He's married a stranger in Las Vegas, delivered a baby, and even walked across an entire country. With his inspiring message spreading like wildfire, Seb has become an in-demand keynote speaker where he helps individuals, associations, and companies tap into connection, grow meaningfully, and make a difference. His 100 Things keynote has been delivered on all seven continents to more than 250,000 people, and he's raised more than half a million dollars for various charities. Seb is also author of a book called 100 Things, What's on Your List. He's host of the 100 Things podcast, and he's featured in ESPN documentary, 100 things to do before you die. In this episode, we're going to go through Seb's moment of reflection after tragedy, why people wait so long to seek what makes us happy, how to create your list of 100 things, and what you can do to blast that mediocrity mindset once and for all. Before we begin, remember that the right bit of inspiration can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So if there's a friend or loved one who needs to hear this episode, share it with them right now. And to get access to episodes like this one as soon as they're released, hit that subscribe button. All right, let's win the day with Sebastian Terry. Seb, great to see you, my friend. Thanks so much for coming on the Win the Day show. Mate, that was great. What an intro. <laughs> wow. Just getting you pumped up. Thank you so much. When you read that quote, I was like, oh, yeah, I can't believe it. I just shared that on my Instagram, but you've done your research. It's I, I have. It's a brilliant one, isn't it? And mm. where do we even begin with you? Where I think I would like to begin with your amazing story is that moment in high school when you were sitting down with a career advisor who had basically suggested to you, go into university, that would be a great path for you. How did you feel at that time and how comfortable were you with that path going straight into university? Well, it was Mr. Tebble was his name. Uh, a really lovely guy. Um, but yeah, I think he just said the same thing to everyone. You know, what do I do? Go to university. Um, I just meant nothing. I mean, I, I, I don't know, like at that age I had no, and I still don't have much of an idea, but I, I just had no idea 17 or 18 years old. And, uh, I kind of just went with it. I didn't question it. I typically didn't. I was sort of quite, um, sheltered growing up and I, I didn't really think outside the line. So I did, I went to university, um, and I learned, uh, not a lot. I got this 
kind of odd degree called human movement, <laughs> which they then changed. Uh, they changed it to exercise science because they realized, I guess- Sounds much fancier. Sounds a lot better than human <laughs> movement. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was kind of this dull sort of path that I walked for three and a half years. And uh, I actually remember being at graduation because I, I came back from England. I backpacked kind of in between finishing the degree and um, actually getting it type of thing. And, uh, and I came back from graduation and I thought, oh, this made my dad really proud. And I remember my dad at graduation just looked at me and was like, cool, well done. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what? Oh, well, if it meant nothing to him, why did I do it? So, yeah, <laughs> and in one of those moments. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? Like it's people that go from high school to university without any real analysis of who they are and where they want to go. And it was certainly like that for me. And as a result, they either drop out of university or they finish their three or four year degree with a piece of paper and a mountain of student debt. Mm -hmm. And neither of those things obviously mean a great deal to them. So people, they then go overseas. And uh, it's a really interesting thing that happens. So what's the problem with people who go straight to university and and attach their happiness to a piece of paper that they're going to get at the end of it. Well, I don't know if it's a problem that's kind of, you can say everyone suffers from. I mean, I think for some people, perhaps it's good. Some people are lucky enough to know exactly what it is they want to do out of high school, I imagine. I don't know too many, but, you know, in that case, fantastic. Uh, I, I can only speak for myself, but I do think it, you know, it ranges far wider than just me. How are you meant to know? How are you meant to know at that age, you know, what you want to do? And I mean, I think committing a lot of money to a degree that's quite niche um, might work out. I mean, I, you know, I have friends who did my degree and they ended up, they did have to do additional subjects and courses, but they ended up as teachers or actually one of my friends is here in LA. He's the head trainer for the Galaxy, LA Galaxy, the soccer team. So it works out for some, but I think the majority of people, and again, myself, you end up, I ended up $19,000 in debt, uh, nine, uh, three and a half years later, at, you know, at, at my graduation with this bit of paper. And I just remember thinking, what on earth does this even mean? Like it, you, you don't know. I, I actually applied to be an engineer because my dad was an engineer. That's how little I knew about myself. You know, I, I I'm not an engineer. I, I have many other <laughs> skills, but I don't have those ones. Um, so it's just funny. Like a young age, you just sort of go in a direction. I mean, at the end of the day, nothing matters. So like, you hope that everyone sort of just rolls out into like the space where they are really mm. comfortable and they find themselves and purpose and all those wonderful words. But you know, it's not guaranteed. So perhaps the journey is you just get rough and ready, and and who cares if you can do a degree or not. But um, I don't know. I, I, I came out feeling a little bit uh, underwhelmed and, and I thought, well, that's given me no clarity on anything. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and I, I kind of went on a bit of a journey, you know, to try and figure out why I felt like that. Yeah, it's so true. And I was always envious of those people who knew exactly what they wanted to be like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a lawyer, an accountant, whatever it might be, where they say, cool, they have a very linear path ahead of them. But for mm. people who don't have that entrepreneurial or that who don't have that linear path, they have more of those entrepreneurial tendencies. Yeah. It can just make that frustration and that discomfort so much more significant. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know if I'm an entrepreneur. People keep saying that, but like, I, I probably more, well, I don't even know. I'm more, cre I'm create. Maybe mm. entrepreneurs are create. I don't know. Not I don't know what it is. But you know what I mean? Like, I just feel like I, 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 there's stuff out there that I'm trying to explore all the time. Even now, I'm trying to do hands. I'm, I just turned 40 and like this last month I've been trying to do a handstand, um, <laughs> which, which is really hard. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess when you do a degree, you, um, you just get put down this path, which is just very, you know, within these lines. And, and that wasn't what I mm. needed, I don't think. So I just kind of op opened it up a little bit, you know? Yeah. And what I love about your journey is you have been so open to exploring all of those. It's almost like, without sounding too existential, but like the uh, 
open to the universe and different possibilities and things, different pathways and what you what you knew previously. And after university, you found yourself drifting uh, aimlessly overseas for a few years, I think you mentioned in your book. How was your mindset at that time when you were doing the drifting? And I'm sure having a lot of, a lot of fun along the way. Yeah. Were you full of enjoyment and happiness in the present or was there always an uncomfortable feeling that you had a responsibility deep down that would eventually require your full attention? Well, I knew I was drifting. I knew that. Um, I, I I was kind of, yeah, I, f- I finished, went backpacking for about a year and a half. And you know, a lot of Australians do, a lot of people do, uh, South America, America, into Europe, a little bit of Africa, what have you. And I remember um, just wondering, oh, well, like at certain points, I mean, I was kind of in the moment just enjoying myself. And I was figuring out a lot about myself too. Um, you know, I, I remember you just have little conversations or events that happen. You're like, oh, I didn't know that about me or whatever. But I remember I was actually in Morocco. I was in a bus and we were driving through the Atlas Mountains. And I remember looking out the window. This is kind of a year and a half into backpacking as a 23-year-old then. And just thinking, oh, I need to get home. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm done with this. Mm-hmm. So I ended up going home, getting a myriad of like random jobs. I was teaching surfing. I was working in bars. I was working at radio stations. as like the guy on the street giving away free donuts. And like <laughs> I was just doing everything and anything. And I, I knew I, you know, I... I I wasn't doing what I perhaps was called to, but I was having fun at least. But back then I also thought that, um, you know, that what people do is start a business because that's all I kind of, you know, you, you either work for somebody or you start a business. And so I ended up like starting a, an, an inflatable movie screen business, like an events company with a friend of mine in Australia, just because I thought that's kind of what you do. So I had, yeah, I went backpacking a million random jobs, I didn't take anything seriously. Then I started a company just because that's what I thought you'd do. And then two and a half years into that, I was just really miserable. Uh, and I didn't care if we made a billion dollars, which we absolutely didn't, um, <laughs> or or nothing. I was just unhappy. And, again, that was sort of part of the catalyst as to, you know, me starting this list of 100 things. Yeah, and you were backpacking overseas when you received that tragic phone call about what happened to Chris. Can you take us into the moment when you heard about it and how it impacted your mindset at the time? Yeah, so I was in Canada, staying with some friends, Roddy and Janita, and uh, yeah, the phone rings in the middle of the night, and it's a friend of mine from the Northern Beaches in Sydney, um, Bortho is his nickname, and Bortho tells me, yeah, uh, Chris has passed away, and I, I, I kind of, I don't remember much of the phone call after that. In honesty, uh, I the news com- obviously completely shook me. Um, and it did for so many people on the Northern beaches. And I, I remember getting out of a, like a pencil and a piece of paper, just jotting down stuff. I, I find it easy to, uh, when I'm processing stuff, I like to write, it helps me. And I just remember thinking, well, what's really important? You know, what is important? I have this degree, I'm backpacking. I'm suddenly, I'm in Canada in the middle of nowhere. Like what, what's actually important. And it, to me, I thought, huh, I think Chris was happy. I think he was happy. If he got his life again, would he do the same things or would he change it all? And I remember, you know, my conclusion was I don't think he would change anything. I think he kind of lived a really good life. I think it was values driven. You know, he lived on the northern beaches. He he loved his mates. He loved his family. He loved team sport. He loved having fun. He loved having a beer. Rightly or wrongly by anyone else's code, he just lived his authentic kind of life, right, through his values. And it was a life far too short, but one really well lived. And then in Canada, in the middle of the night, I thought about that kind of um, question for myself. And I thought, well, if I died today, um, what could I say about all my life that I've done up until this point? 
And I thought about it for the very first time because, you know, it's, it's, it's important to take a step away to get a different perspective on things, of course. And I just hadn't done it before with me. And I just realized, oh, my God, I would change everything. I, I spent three and a half years doing a degree that meant nothing to me. Um, you know, I was backpacking, which seemed great. But again, I was just doing it because other people said you should go backpacking. So I did. I just didn't know who I was and I was unhappy. Uh, I, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about myself. And I thought if I had my life again, I would completely change it. So I, with this pencil and pen, I just began writing down just a few things that I would do that would make me smile more. It just dawned on me that my priority was to be happy. So, you know, on the list went, marry a stranger in Las Vegas. Why not? I was always curious about it, you know, live on a deserted island, um, you know, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, that was kind of just a really – I remember it It was just so profound to me. I was like, what could be more important than being happy? Mm. Nothing. To this day, it's all I want, you know. Yeah, it's an authentic life well spent. The There's a Bob Proctor quote. I don't know if you've heard this one before. It says, most people tiptoe through life waiting to make it safely to death. And that might even actually have gone back to Earl Nightingale, but it's such a great quote talking about how just that safety that people put around it. But if you're living in that, and obviously there's a place for safety, but if you're living that authentic life, um, it is something that is, it spreads to all of the other people around you to inspire them to do the same. And Mm. there's a passage that stood out to me in your book that said, Death sparks reflection first of the deceased and then of yourself. Death sparks reflection first of the deceased and then of yourself. That really stood out to me. What what was your process of self-reflection in the days immediately after receiving that that news? Well, oh, so interesting. I don't usually talk about this. So mm. I thought about Chris and his life. Would he do it differently? I don't think he would have. I thought about my life. Would I do it differently? 100% was my realization. So I created the beginnings of what was 100 things, my list. And then Chris's funeral was like a, I don't know, four or five days later or something. So I was in Canada. The funeral was in Sydney. And I wrote this list and I was so inspired by this thought of, oh, my God, I just need to do things that make me smile, whatever that is for me, that I looked at my list, the beginnings of it, and I thought, I'm going to go to Las Vegas and marry a stranger. I'm kind of like just near it anyway. So I, I flew to, to, to Vegas uh, and I did that. Now, I did that as opposed to going to Chris's funeral, and which sounds weird. And it kind of, it was like, a, it was an interesting decision because obviously there's the respect part of going to a, a funeral and, you know, paying your respects. But I thought, um, you know, I, what better way to kind of like honor Chris than by doing something which he directly inspired me to do. Mm. So I did that. And just by coincidence, the day I got married to this stranger, was actually the day of his funeral. And then I flew home a few days after and I, I saw his family and stuff straight away. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that, that was it. Like the direct result of that was, I think two or three days later, I married a complete stranger. <laughs> Such a great story. Um, but yeah, uh, her name was Shivali. I actually had her on my podcast recently. Uh, and I hadn't spoken to her in eleven years. You're uh, a horrible husband, aren't you? I was. Well, it didn't, didn't work out. We, yeah, it lasted a day, but yeah, it's great. And out of everything that you included on your original 100 things list, I know you had a, a few things that you put in there as TBA as well. Yeah, you had things like skydiving naked. Well, a few things uh, with a bit of nudity involved. Mm. Uh, setting a Guinness World Record. Getting married to a stranger in Las Vegas. What was the one that scared you the most to even contemplate it or put it on the list? Huh. Well, they're all pretty scary. Like the, the theme on my list is hopefully they make me smile more. 
or learn something about myself or the world, I guess. But also that they're, they're out of my comfort zone, the majority of them. Why, you know, what's the point otherwise? So in this, in the, in this evolution of growth, like I, I think, you know, to grow, it's good to get out of your comfort zone. I think you feel your edges and suddenly you realize, oh, I'm a bit more capable than I thought I was. So, you know, um, I think in then finding stuff in the list uh, the, that I like, then you don't need to go to your comfort zone mm. ongoingly. But anyway, so I, they all kind of scared me. I mean, posing nude in art class, you know, <laughs> obviously. Uh, it was very confronting. Living by myself on a deserted island for a week was really confronting. Doing an Ironman, like a, a, a long-form triathlon, was. they're all scary in different ways. I mean, some are physical, some are emotional. Um uh, yeah, learning French is scary in one way. Like even now, like I'm still learning. It's, it's ongoing. And I, I, I had a virtual Zoom date with a French girl, actually French Canadian, uh, about a month or two ago. And it was, I was just sweating. My, my French isn't that good. It's definitely not good enough for a conversation. Uh, so that was awful. I told her I had a red car halfway through the date and uh, date finished just after. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think, um, there are some that I, I, I mean, geez, I, I wanted to do a tower. Uh, you know, in Vanuatu, a rite of passage for the kids is to jump off a bamboo tower into the ground with a vine tied around your legs, like the original form of bungee jumping. It's actually off my list now. But that literally, you know, it, <coughs> it went on because it scared me. Um, and then it came off because uh, 12 years on from starting this journey, I, the death-defying, adrenaline-pumping stuff isn't really me anymore. You know, my, my values have changed over time. So... I think there's far more important things now than risking breaking my neck. In your book, you mentioned that you grabbed a piece of paper and you wrote, death puts things into perspective. We only have one life. And you've touched on perspective a couple of times so far today. How can people receive a similar jolt you did without having to wait until it's too late or going through the tragedy that you went through? It's such a great question. I mean, because the common narrative is, you know, we, we, we all know someone who has almost lost their life, has lost someone close to them has been diagnosed with, you know, any number of terminal illnesses, cancer, let's use as the example. And it's those people only after a dark moment, they go, hang on, what do I want to do? They then look at the the light, the bright, the opportunity. What if, you know, uh, what what's happiness to me? Why do we wait? You know, I, it's an interesting question. The, the answer, of course, is we don't have to. Um, and I, I mean, I, so I'm really fortunate. I, I speak to, a, a, you know, lots of people who do incredible things as you do, and as many people I'm sure have been in this seat have done as well. And I try and ask as often as I can, you know, what what allowed you to do that? Why? Why you? And they, none of these people really ever say, because I'm special or I'm brave or, you know, I'm, um, I'm lucky. Some of them do. But the majority say something to the, to the effect of, I just gave myself permission. I just gave myself a split-second decision mm. to think about myself. And then they choose to move forward. And so the... I mean, so the answer to the question, my my answer to your question is, so how do people, you know, uh, take a moment to, like, change their lives or consider what else could be different? Um, choice. Mm. That's it. Just choose to. And it's as simple as that. I think we try and overcomplicate it, especially in this world that I've accidentally found myself in, which is, like, personal development or something, uh, which is so funny to think. But, you know, we overcomplicate it. It's three yeah. tools to do this, five ways to action that, the secrets too. Let me empower you by telling you that... Hey, it's not anything like that. Just choose to. Yeah. Just choose and you'll be you'll be so surprised. We do this accountability group every Friday. People all over the world, right? And they come in and we say, share a goal and and uh, and how are you going to do that? And and so they, they share a goal. Most people have goals. Uh, and then they say, oh, I don't know how I'm going to do that. So we talk through like an action plan and we say, just do it. We'll catch up next week, see what happens. 
everybody starts doing these things. When we're, every, you know, so every week now we're, we're flooded with people who are like, you won't believe what I achieved this week, no matter how big or small or complex or simple. And uh, yeah, so I, for me, it's just giving yourself permission mm. to choose and consider what you want to do. And, and that's it. the work that you're doing, it gives people that external accountability, doesn't it, to go after that and, and give themselves that permission? Yeah. Well, they say that by writing down a goal, you're 42% more likely to achieve it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you share that goal with someone, you're 65% more likely to achieve it. And if you share that with somebody ongoingly, so having an accountability buddy, you're 95% more likely to achieve it, yeah. which is remarkable. So that using having accountability in some shape or form when it comes to your goals is is crucial. Mm-hmm. And and I look at my list too and I you know I I've kind of I've retrospectively learned and or thought about huh what did I learn in that experience and what have you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's people been involved the whole time whether people are helping me directly, whether people are just supporting me, whether you know you feel that oh gosh, uh, I should really do something now. You know whatever mm-hmm. it is, accountability is crucial. How do you believe people would change their lives if they knew when their time on the earth would end? So interesting. O- on my list was to see a fortune teller. Uh, it was a pretty underwhelming, it was the most <laughs> underwhelming uh, goal from my list. And I asked her, I, I was just curious. I was like, hey, um, a Turkish tea leaf uh, reader, right? So we had like a cup of tea in the middle and whatever. And she, I go, do you know when people are going to die? And she points at me and goes, 91 years old. And I was like, I didn't ask you. So anyway, um, <laughs> how would people change their lives if they knew when? I don't know. I mean, I, I so I don't like using the term bucket list, even, mm. you know, even though it's a very comment we get what that means and that is essentially what i do because it puts all the emphasis on death things to do before you die and it's very fear driven you're gonna die so make sure you so i i tend to stray away from that having said that i also feel like this you know uh reflection or the acknowledgement that we are gonna die does add you know needed healthy urgency to to living right so you know i i have forgotten your question but it had something to do with that (laughs) (laughs) it's about like what uh would how would people change if they yeah, yeah if they knew when they were going to die? I, I I think they I, I I'd like to think that the majority of people would uh, it, they'd cut away the the fat yep. uh, the things that are a bit more useless and 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 kind of focus back in on on what's important, which I think we're unfortunately losing a lot of right now yeah. with social media and you see people you know it's very important for them to take a photo with the right light, even though there's a great conversation and friends around you know and it's like things like that would stop I think yeah absolutely um, often you talk about the importance of putting on your own oxygen mask first so helping yourself before you go and help others why do so many people find it easy to concentrate on someone else's life rather than their own well, I think, uh, yeah, so I, I think, you know, the theory is if you put your own oxygen mask on, you're okay, and then you're okay to help other people. That's been my journey um, since I started the list. But I think, yeah, a lot of people are either one or the other. They're either incredibly selfish or incredibly selfless. But both aren't, you know, either of those aren't good. It's the combination, which is healthy. But I think to your question of people helping other people and more so than themselves, why, I think it's easier and it takes a pressure off you because you can also tell yourself kind of subconsciously, well, oh, I can't do the thing because I'm just being such a good person elsewhere, mm-hmm. you know. And so I get a lot of emails from from mums actually who, um, you know, they, they, they look after their kids and, and do all the things, which is absolutely gorgeous and, and needed, but they do forget about themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like a, a common email I get is my son, daughter has just left the house. They're 18 and I don't know who I am. And so I, you know, I, I, I think – 
that highlights the problem of you do need to, it's a balance, right? You yeah. need to look after yourself a little and, and others a little and put them together. Otherwise you end up a little bit devoid of something that's really important. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really, really good point. Uh, if you were sitting down with someone to help them make their 100 things list, what would you say are the most important attributes of what makes a good list? Well, as we teach it, there's eight steps, right? Four to create your list and four to activate it. So the, the first four steps, step one is permission. Mm-hmm. Um, again, just giving yourself permission to think about yourself. It's not selfish. It's not, you know, it, it's not negative. It's it's really selfless ultimately because it makes you a better person for other people. Give yourself permission. I think you need to reflect, um, you know, reflect on your life. You can't change it, what's happened beforehand, but you can certainly, you know, it all comes from my experience, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, when Chris had passed away, I remember thinking, well, what, what have I done? What's got me to here? And I just realized a bunch of stuff that I wasn't stoked about. So we actually get people to write a eulogy, mm-hmm. um, highlight good and bad things uh, about themselves. And if you understand that stuff, which can be quite confronting, you can go, oh, right, I need to change X, Y, and Z. So, oh, I just almost took a TV off. So <laughs> step three then, uh, as we teach it, would be your spokes to your wheel of life. Um, kind of like a values thing. You know, if you imagine a wheel with spokes, and that's your life. What what are your spokes that make your life strong? Fam, it could be anything, but you know, typically it's family, connection, adventure, mm-hmm. education, maybe spirituality. Um, it, there's a million things. But if you're able to identify those spokes to your wheel of life, let's just say health is on everyone's list. I think uh, you can then go right. What's five health related goals? And that's how you know you start a list. And that's step four: creating a list, going from those four previous mm-hmm. things: permission, reflection, spokes, list. How a big question I wanted to ask you was how does the 100 things list intertwine with traditional goal setting? Uh, I don't really know. Mm. Uh, I mean, what's traditional goal setting? The idea of a traditional goal would would be that you have something specific and measurable that you write down. But in my experience, people will say like, yeah, I want to have a million dollars in the bank. And it's like, cool, when do you want to do that? And then people, they don't put a time frame around it. They don't talk about how, and they certainly don't make it emotionally charged. Like, why do I want to achieve that goal? Mm. If you just said, I want the money in the bank versus my mum died of cancer, I want to to have a million dollars so I can attribute that to cancer research. So how is that different? I guess your 100 things list is more experiential to, to begin with. Um, no, I think though, so you're right. I think a lot of people would just put things on lists because a million dollars would be good. In fact, I just interviewed people in Venice. I walked around the boardwalk and I, I said, what's on your list? And so many people said money, million dollars. And they're like, okay, cool. What then? Um, you know, if you keep asking why, why, why it gets mm. to, I just want to be happy. Right. That's ultimately what we all want. Um, so that's why the reflection part is really important. You only want things on your list that are meaningful to you. Otherwise, what's the point? So mm. you have to think about yourself as an individual. Um, that's smart. This is an acronym, SMART. I, I, uh, I was going to say S is for smart. No. What's S? Specific. Specific, <laughs> measurable. Attainable. Attainable, realistic, yep. time, something or other. So the quote that you started with, Will Smith saying something around uh, mediocrity. Being um, realistic is the most common path to mediocrity. It's so interesting, right? So tradition, yeah. the R is being realistic in this acronym. Will Smith, you know, the guru. Uh, says, well, actually, that's just going to lead you to mediocrity. I, I, I agree. I think, um, you know, once you have your goal, let's assume you've done our course and it's very meaningful to you mm-hmm. because you've understood that your mum has an illness that you want to get a million dollars to help with that illness, right? So, so that's meaningful. It's then about, again, simplicity. Uh, how? Uh, sorry, I'm going to start again because it's not how. <laughs> <laughs> So once you've got this this list, uh, these goals that are meaningful to you, 
Um, it doesn't have to be overly complicated. At that point, there are just three things that we would teach. Uh, understanding the who. Uh, who are the people who are involved? Um, you know, is it just yourself? Uh, is it that you need to, if, if you're running a marathon, do you need a trainer? Do you need to then speak to a marathon, per, uh, the, the events coordinator to buy a ticket? You know, mm -hmm. yes, yes, yes. Do you need to speak to your partner to say, hey, I'm not going to be around for the next six months much because I'm training? Whatever it is, if you identify the who, that's really important. You then go on to the what. What are the specific things that need to happen? I mean, quite literally, that, that's that's all you need. Mm. Buy a pair of running shoes. You need to train. You need to buy a ticket. You need to turn up to somewhere on a certain date or whatever. So the what's, and then finally the when, which is kind of the time specific things. What's the time frame? Can you start right now? The answer is usually yes. Uh, if it's a marathon, there's a specific date. So now suddenly you have a time frame uh, and you can work on you know everything, the what's in between now and then. So yeah, I think it's just simply the who, the what, and the when. Um, and I don't think, just to reiterate this, I don't think goals need to be realistic. Mm. I think, you know, you think of any, I mean, Richard Branson just went to space and as, uh, as did other billionaires. Uh, that seems completely unrealistic as a child, <laughs> but they, they wanted to and they did it. So, you know, I think you're very much limiting yourself to what you think you know is your capacity, which of course isn't right. We're far more capable than we think. So, yeah, I, I think what you have to be specific is in the goals, uh, the, the planning. Mm. That, that's where if you want to get healthy, the goal can't just be like get healthy. You need to then go how, specifically how, and then action. You know, you just need action is the key. Yeah, put that energy into the plan. Of course. There are so many lists out there that just go un unachieved because yeah. action was never applied. Yeah. How often should people revise their list and how often do you revise your own 100 things list? Well, I'm just revising it now, actually. I think so. The, the, the need to revise a list is based off the premise that we change as people over time. Our values change. I'm different to how I was when I started this 12 years ago. I, I was, as I said, it was about kind of breaking the shackles. It was about... Um, you know, uh, liberation and freedom and all this stuff. And now it's not, I, you know, it's more about connection and trying to serve, if you will. I was going to say almost the last two years of what's happened with the world with COVID will help people. A lot of people have come out of their shell and started to have that awareness of, wow, I am that question you asked yourself, am I happy? Yeah. And they're like, wow, we're missing connection. We're missing physical connection, all those different things. Yeah. So, I mean, for, I, I think it's really important to kind of check in with yourself as often as possible. Values don't change, you know, from day to day. But so maybe it's every three months or six months. Um, but you need to because you might find you, you hear the story of someone who's who's gunned for this particular goal for years and years and years and years. They get there. They get it. And then they're like, huh. Uh oh. I thought that would feel better. Yeah. It could be, and it might be because their values have changed. And although that may have been important to them at one point, it's not now. So that's why it's important. Cause I think if you, if you keep going for goals that don't mean anything to you, you you're not going to feel fulfilled when you get there. Yeah. Having that happiness in the present. So when I was doing an MBA in Boston in 2012, I had a notes app and I wrote down a bunch of things that I wanted to just experience. Yeah. And I had forgotten about that list and I saw it about four years later, interestingly enough, during a time when I wasn't particularly happy in the present with, with what was going on. And when I saw that list and there were random things on there, like I wanted to start a business. I wanted to go and see a Floyd Mayweather fight in Las uh, Vegas, like random things like that. And when I saw that list, I had ticked them all off. And I was like, oh my God, I had not even had the process of, of checking in with that. And obviously the experiences at the time were, were amazing, but I hadn't had that reflection. And you mentioned something there about 
um, people when they have that experience. And in my uh, perspective, anytime you achieve something that's quite noteworthy, it's almost like that period of coming down off a high where you might feel a fleeting moment of, wow, this is a pretty cool moment, but you're right back down. And in some cases, you, you can feel pretty low afterwards. Mm. Have you had a feeling like that with any of those experiences Never. that you've been on? Never. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Um, not because I'm special. Uh, that's it. That's the brilliance of a list. If you have a list of things and each thing is meaningful, Mm -hmm. you check one off and then you go, right, what's next? That's life. Like just linking this all up. I mean, it's not, you know, this, this bucket list is not something that sits aside to life. It it is life. It's career. It is personal. Mm -hmm. It's professional. It's, it's within the community. It's internal psychology. It's all of those things. So uh, cause you hear like, you know, post expedition blues and all that sort of stuff. And I, and I, of course I get it. Um, you do something incredible and then you come back and you're like, what's next? Well, but what a great question. What's next? Think about it. Come up with a goal and go for that and you'll be just as excited for that. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. And this is the other, this is my biggest, one of my biggest learnings from my whole journey, right, is I thought it would take me a hundred things to be happy, you know, um, and I couldn't be further from the truth. Although I'm somewhat, I don't, I don't know what the word is, celebrated almost for you know, having this list of bizarre thing. You know, like I'm on a podcast. How, how lovely. I have a show. How great. Because I have these interesting things. It's got nothing to do with mm. my happiness. That's just like the, t- that's the tip of the iceberg. Um, my list is purely a vehicle for me, I think, to get closer to understanding who I am. It allows me to get closer to that every single day. And I dare say the secret to actual happiness is just finding out who you are. And being that every single day, no matter what the situation, if you're by yourself, if you're with your partner, a loved one, friends, social, whatever you, if you're on a stage, if you're just yourself, that's happiness. Not Mm. whether you've jumped out of a plane naked or climbed Mm. Everest or, you know, done any number of other things, which are all great and needed for the process. But that's not it. That's not it. Yeah. Who cares if I've done a hundred things? Like I I think about this sounds weird, but I think about this. So I'm on stages, right? Speaking. uh, And I always think. I, you know, I look out at the crowd and they, they you know, they, they pay you money to speak about a list of things. If an, if an alien came down from wherever he is and he stands at the back of the room or floats uh, and he says to the person next to him, what's he talking about? Why are all these people listening to him? And the person goes, oh, he's, uh, he's doing the things that he wants. The alien would go, what, are you not? It's not everyone doing that? It's ridiculous. So we should all just be doing the things because ultimately it brings us slightly closer to, to who we are. And I, and I think that's I think that's important. Yeah, I think that's a great definition of happiness. Getting shot in Colombia, tell us about that experience in particular. Yeah, so I so it came from I was hitchhiking across America on my list. I think it was number forty three. I went from uh, Fort Lauderdale to San Diego. And in every single car, pretty much every car, there were 13 rides I got over six days. Everyone had a gun. And on this one occasion, this Mexican guy, who was so funny, I can't remember his name, he was so fun. He goes, I have a gun in my glove box uh, if you you know, if you know, want to play with it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> that came out weird, didn't So I I did. So I got out this gun and he's like, it's not loaded. And I, I, um, I was just like holding a gun. I'd never held a gun before. And I just pointed it at myself. Like just, I just want to look down the barrel. And then I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I put the thing away and I was, it, it freaked me out. So I was like, how do I get over that? You know, what is that? So I was like, well, I'm going to get shot. I'm going to get shot. I'm going to have one point at me and someone shoot me wearing a bulletproof vest. So I then Googled <laughs> bulletproof clothing factories. The first one that popped up was in Colombia, this, this company called Miguel Caballero. Uh, not, I'm sure that's not how you pronounce it. <laughs> uh, they do like the um, bulletproof clothing for like the, the 
Taiwanese army, the president of the US, like suits and shirts and whatever. So I emailed them and I said, hey, I, I want to get shot. Would you mind? And he, <laughs> he emailed me back and went, I'd love to. So I flew to <laughs> Colombia, got picked up by these like guys uh, in, in Bogota, taken to this factory where he makes all this stuff. And yeah, I I uh, I, I put on this jacket. It was like a leather jacket. Um, yeah, it was bulletproof, of course. And he allowed me to pick a bullet, picked a bullet. And he, he stood this far away from closer. I mean, he was like, I mean, it was here. It was point blank. And he asked me to count to three and on three, just exhale and he would shoot me. So I go, okay. And I was like, <laughs> I saw his finger on the trigger, pull it quite tightly. And I just saw like his knuckles go a little white. And I remember in that moment thinking, what if this goes wrong? Because I didn't think about this. What if I die? What if he shoots me and I die? So of course, for everyone watching, it's my fault. But <laughs> I was like, what? Okay, what happens? So this happened to be 18 months after I started this journey, right? I started the journey because I asked myself, what happened if I died today? And my answer was, oh, I'd be pretty unhappy. I don't even know who I am. 18 months on with this guy about to shoot me, I thought, what happens if I die today? And I realized I'd be happy. Yeah. I, I realized that was a, that was going to be the ending of my first book. It, it wasn't. But yeah, uh, I just realized if this goes wrong, it'd be pretty funny, actually completely my fault and but i would die happy but yeah he uh he said count to three so i i said one and he shot me uh yeah and he shot me and it worked of course and um that was interesting that you can do that what a uh, what a planet we're we're on um it is fascinating isn't it like that whole that whole situation and uh i think it would almost be better not knowing when the gunshot was going to go off wouldn't it like the yeah. it's like because it's it's the weight obviously i'm sure the the bullet would have been quite painful too but the, yeah. with the force and everything but it's like that weight like if someone told you to count to 10 and then it's going to happen you'd be like oh my god that would be the hardest 10 seconds in your life yeah it was it was very strange it was like you know it was it was a factory i i, I want to say there was like 500 people working on like sewing machines you know what, putting the i don't know what it was kevlar or something to in all these suits and shirts and he'd shot them all they all get shot when they get the job he's like congratulations bang and <laughs> and they were all looking at me it was just an eerie silence as it happened but yeah it was and he had his daughter in there i've got this on video obviously on on my youtube and stuff but he had a daughter i don't know i'm terrible with ages about that big. And she had a pink a pink tutu and roller skates. And she was just skating around through everything, just skating around getting shot. She skated past. Just another day in the factory. It was so it was so strange. And mm. then after that, I flew straight to um, San Diego to check off something else to my list, which, which was I, I, uh, be an ordained wedding minister and marry two people together. So I was already a minister and I got invited to marry some people who I'd never met together. So I did that. Life's brilliant and weird. Yeah. yeah. You had a moment where you booked a one-way ticket to America to go to Oklahoma, I believe it was, to a death row inmate who had yeah. been your pen pal. J-Lock, was that? Was it J-Lock? J-Lock, yeah. Was that experience about ticking off something on the list or was there something that you felt like was going to be much more profound about that moment? Uh, well, I had to kind of to, to frame it. I uh, My friend had passed away. I married a stranger in Las Vegas. <laughs> I went back to Australia and went, wow, this list is unbelievable. I'm going to do this. And then I completely conformed back to normality. Like I, I started this business and whatever. Two and a half years later, I was really upset. And I was like, oh, my God. I, I started crying in the back of a cab, actually, because I had no money and a friend had paid for my dinner and I just felt like, you know, shit. Uh, and then I was like, huh, I wonder what happened to that list of things that, you know. So I went home, got it out of my drawer, put it on the wall, 
actually got a map and put a hundred tags all over the the the, uh, the map. I was like, that's it. I'm going to go back to this list. As soon as I pay the company off, I'm done. So I look, what can I start working on? And one was visit an inmate on death row. So I wanted to chat someone who had a completely different reality to mine. So I just like Googled death row pen pals. Google's an incredible tool. Uh, death row pen pals was met with a website that had thousands of people on there, wrote to one guy and we started for 12 months conversing, written letters back and forth. Then he invited me in and I, it's coincidentally at the same time that we paid the company off. I was like, right, I'm going. So I flew to LA, one way ticket, and then to Oklahoma, went to McAllister uh, to see J-Lock. And that was, that was, um, yeah, it was an incredible experience. It just, because so, I, I, I'm really curious about life and I, I like to see the differences and I, and I, I like to feel that and, and understand and try and gain perspective, this, this beautiful word. And that day was, it, it was immense. It was immense. I mean, I don't know how much of the story you want, but middle of a boiling hot place called McAllister, mm. this like penitentiary up on the hill, shot glistening barbed wire as I'm driving up to it. You have to relinquish all your good, take your belt off, your you know, your phone, your wallet and whatever. And they let me in. I went three levels underground and then there's these doors you open and you walk through, it shuts behind you. You walk through another one, shuts behind you. Like, uh, what's that, comp- that Agent Smart or whatever? Yeah, like the- Maxwell Smart. Maxwell Smart, yeah. Yeah. It's like the opening to that. Is is the underground because of that's where the, the death row inmates are, they're underground? That's where they live. Wow. So he is in his cell for 23 hours a day. For the one hour a day he gets out, it's in a cell which is underground, three levels underground. I think it was three levels underground, but there's no um, like ceilings. In any, so there's it's basically a skylight right up to the sky, which you can see. And uh, he said um, if he's lucky, he gets in there and the sun will be crossing the top of it. He's lucky he'll be able to see the sun. Yeah. Um, so any, yeah. So I think it is a security thing, um, from my understanding. But yeah, I, I went into this room, go through the doors, go into this room, and there's three windows on either side. And in front of each window is a stool, and next to each window is a is a telephone on the wall. So I sit next to the second one on the right. I sit down. I'm looking through. Reinf- so there's reinforced glass. There's bars. There's a telephone here. I look through, and it's an empty, tiny room. And then suddenly the door opens. He walks in. Jay Lock. I've been chatting him for twelve months. By via letter, and then he just comes in. He puts his fist up against the window, and we like do a little that. And uh, I pick up the phone, and we chat for five and a half hours about everything, everything. Yeah, and it was uh, you know I learned about what he did. He never told me over over letters. I told him what I was up to. He sh- he I mean, he, sh- he showed me all these letters from girls that he's been chatting to in there. All these photos. He's like, this is my sunshine. This is my sweet pea. This is, he had nicknames for all of them. The guy next to him. I mean, this is, there's so many stories and you're, you're probably going to cut these all out, but like the guy (laughs) next to him, um, in death row was chatting to a lady who I'd met in the reception area. And I, you know, I, I, I hadn't done this before. So I didn't know what you sort of say in the reception area. And I was like, Oh, who are you here to see type thing? Yeah. And she was like, my husband. And I'm like, Oh gosh, I'm sorry. Uh, and I'm like, am I sorry? I don't, I, I don't even know. And I was like, how long have you guys been married? And she said something like six months or whatever. Uh, but she had met him via written letter. So she's never been with him that she just met him. So the guys on the inside are looking to talk to girls and there are women and men, I'm sure on the outside who for some reason have some kind of want or need to be with somebody who's like a bad boy. Mm-hmm. And so they had got married. She was visiting him. So J-Lock, as I'm on the phone and she sat next to me, is saying, yeah, that dude next to me, he's getting killed tomorrow. And I was like, wow, what's he getting 
what's why? And he goes, well, he murdered someone. He's just, uh, he doesn't care. He's, he's very open about it. He has no remorse. Um, that yeah, was the date of his execution, was the next day. The next day, yeah. the guy next to him, I'm assuming, got killed. Brings up a whole other, you know, uh, library of questions and thoughts on that. We won't get into it. But, yeah, so it was just a very real, real conversation. J-Lock's out of death row now. Yeah. He, they, the, he basically got accused of uh, killing a baby his girlfriend at the time's baby. And it was either him or her mm. shaking to, to death. And, uh, but they both got punished for it. So he was arguing he can't do that. So anyway, mm. he's out. So he's in a maximum security prison now, no parole. Um, he's on Facebook. Uh, he sent me a message one day with a number to call. I was back in Australia and I called him. I was at breakfast and I was like, what? I was like, this is weird. So I called it because I'm curious. And uh, he picked up and he's like, yo, dog. And I was like, hey, J-Lock. <laughs> what? <laughs> so anyway, uh, and then like I followed him on Facebook and then he said some pretty weird stuff on there about, you know, when, you, when you're shooting an enemy, shoot him in the face. And I was like, okay, I don't need to be friends with this guy on social media. So anyway, he's out. But that experience was, was pretty. I actually put a lot of, I love writing. Yeah. So I wrote uh, a big story about that and put it on my, I had a blog originally. And that was the story that Random House, uh, the, the book publishing company, um, read. And they were like, we would like you to write a book about your experiences. So that was, yeah, interestingly, um, yeah, it, it was cool for that reason too. What did J-Lock say about this crazy Aussie who'd flown, you know, I guess including transit time, almost 30 hours to be at a prison for someone who he had never met before? Hmm. I don't remember what he said about that. I think he just appreciated the contact, yeah. you know. Um, it's like, what took you so long? <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, then also there was like, I mean, he, he started emailing me after. He's like, hey, could you get my mum a gift for her birthday? So, like, I went and got, like, this engraved necklace, a heart that he asked for with her, her name or his name on it. And it's it stuff. It, it, yeah. Life's just amazing, you know, like, quite clearly, like, it's got nothing to do with seeing an inmate on death row. Mm. It's, it's something else. It's something about a connection and having an appreciation. I remember when I left, I went out to the car. Boiling hot day in this tiny town in McAllister, dead raccoon, uh, not raccoons, dead armadillo on the side of the road. And uh, I remember going to the car and just, I looked up to the sky, vast out there because it's a tiny place. It was blue, it was hot. And I was like, oh my God, I'm free. I was like, I've got such an appreciation for being free. And I took, I was wearing a pair of underwear, of course, but I took everything else off for some reason. I just sat on the, like I opened up the boot or the trunk of my car, sat on it uh, on the end. And I was just like, wow, I'm just looking up to the sky. I go, I'm free. How yeah. special is that? And then a police officer came up and asked me to put some clothes on. <laughs> but uh, again, it's got nothing to do with that. It's kind of like what you get from the experience. And, yeah. How do we balance responsibility of things like diligent study that set us up for like a fulfilled and meaningful life in the future that can create happiness, wealth, freedom, all those types of things with that yearning to want to tick all of those things off the list? Uh, they're the same thing, aren't they? Mm. I, I, you know, you're, 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 studying because you choose to because your goal is to as you say be diligent and successful yeah. financially or whatever it might be so it's that alignment isn't it it's it's getting everything in your life and just putting it in alignment and creating your 100 things list based off that yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely again like i i think people some people think oh, I, don't have, I don't have a list i don't have a list if you have goals more than one you have a list but you know it's a it's a list mm. and everything should be aligned to what you want to do not what others think you should do or what you think others you know would want of you um yeah, uh, so I, I I think it's all it's, it's the same thing. Yeah, you know, skydiving nude is the same as um, doing you know a, a spiritual study or career development. That their goals, 
and therefore on a list. And a list is, again, comprised of, should be comprised of meaningful Mm. things so that they all live together in this ecosystem. In my experience, evaluating risk can be the very thing that keeps people stuck in the mud their entire life, and it can obviously leave people with a lot of regrets later on. Risk management obviously has a has a place in in um, the right setting, but so is action. So, how do you balance that risk mitigation mm. with taking unrelented action the, the whole time? It's a great question. I, I maybe that that bar is slightly set different for different people. Mm. Um, I, I'm really th- there's an assumption as well that I'll do anything because I'm crazy and like you know <laughs> and of course you know you say someone got shot with a bulletproof vest you, you go oh they are crazy but no there's definitely you have to assess the risk um, just to what what degree uh, you know I, I see a lot of people and I absolutely was this too. I used to do nothing. Before my life, I did nothing. I was scared. I was really fearful. The risk was too much. You know, I didn't want to risk being embarrassed. I didn't want to mm. risk failing. I didn't want to risk looking like an idiot. Um, and so I never did anything. And now I kind of blow past those. I don't really care about that sort of stuff. I think the only, like, real risk we should consider is, like, obviously, you know, this is risking my life and then you can make a decision. And also, like, is it, you know, risking some sort of moral compass or mm. Um, some ethical decision and like I, you know of course or the health and well-being of other people but past that um, you know the risk of being embarrassed all those superficial things oh I might fail I'm embarrassed go and do it because when you when you get those things out of the way I've said it before but, you know but you you realise oh my god I can do that mm. I actually can and it completely reshapes what you A think you're comfortable doing um, and also what you do and what you shoot for next uh, I think I could do anything on the planet is how I feel. I'm sure I can't, but well, actually, no, I don't. Oh no, I actually feel like it. I feel, I really feel I could do anything on the planet. Um, within reason, I'm not going to be the fastest runner in the world, of course, but I can be, you know, much faster than I am now. I just need to commit to it. I only think that in this way, because I've, I've done a plenty of stuff that I'm like, oh, I'm so impressed with myself and everyone would be impressed with themselves if they, you know, put risk to one side and, uh, and just went for it. Yeah. All about that growth you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And you're living it up now in, in sunny LA. It's it's not a bad lifestyle, is it, over, over here at the moment. What happens on those days when you wake Ooh. up and you just don't feel great, you feel lousy, and how do you handle that, those bad days when they when they happen? Um, LA is amazing. I, I love it. I'm in Venice, which is a very unique spot. Um, I Well, you know, I, I guess I have those days. I think, though, if you've got a, a structure in your life or things that are meaningful, again, to you on a, on a list and you have some kind of action plan around them, even on those days where you feel a little, you know, under the weather or less than 100%, you have like this safety net of, okay, cool, I can, you know, I can, should I choose to just like lean into these little plans or daily things that I want to be doing and, and that can get you out of it. But at the same time, a day of doing nothing is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I sometimes do that. Um, but, yeah, I think if, you're surround, if, you, if you surround yourself and, you know, committed to – things that are really important to you, even on those days we feel like shit, mm. you know, you're still doing something which you know deep down is good for you and, and that's that helps, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What are you working on now that you're most excited about? I'm learning French still, actively doing that. Uh, I'm, uh, I want to learn, I can't play piano. I want to learn a classical piano piece because I saw, I had a friend and we went to a bar once and like there was a, 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 it was a hotel lobby bar and there was a white grand piano in the middle and the waitress came over and she said, uh, he said to her, do you mind if I play piano? And she said, can you play? And he went, oh, I can. This dude goes <laughs> up. And, I mean, it was incredible. He played for 30 minutes. It all improvised. And it was, I mean, it was, he, I, I later found out. He was a friend of a friend. He was some kind of 
piano virtuoso. And I was incredibly <laughs> jealous. I was like, I want to learn a classical song. So I'm learning Claire de Lune at the moment. I'm four months into learning. I'm a minute 45 into the song. I love it. Uh, what else? The I was about to ask what's the duration. of the- You can tell the person at the hotel, look, I've got about a minute 45 on the piano. I have to tell most people that. Um, so <laughs> I, uh, I, what else? Um, I, one, uh, the world's greatest prank is on my list. I'm working on that. I can't tell you obviously what it is, but if it works, you'll hear about it. Um, so there's all that sort of stuff. And also from like a business perspective, uh, for 12 years, for, for 10 years, this has just been a beautiful uh, organic kind of accident. Mm. You know, I never did anything to, you know, I didn't go, if I create a list, I'll be on a podcast. It wasn't that. I just, if I, if I create a list, I think I'll be happy. And all the other stuff's just come really, you know, naturally. So, you know, like I said, a show, a book, talks, podcast, whatever. Um and I was just living a very lovely lifestyle in Sydney. Mm. And I thought, well, hang on, I, this is great. But I, you know, I started very early on getting emails from people saying, um, my life's changed. Uh, I, I get emails from people who are on the brink of taking their lives and choose not to because they've sat at a list. I, we've connected strangers to help each other in acts of kindness. Um, we found a kidney for someone who needed a kidney recently. Like it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So I think it'd be a shame if, it didn't get bigger. It'd be a shame if there wasn't more impact. How do I do that? Well, I'm not great with business, so I bought on a business person. So like top of mind and what I work on every single day uh, is furthering the business, growing it, developing it. You've been very kind, actually, and helped in various ways, which I'm very so appreciative for. So that's kind of, you know, I have my list and part of that is business development. You know, mm. uh, I want to impact a million people with lists and, um, and yeah, so that's it's kind of what I think about. Yeah, well, you're doing great work. Well, let's now move into the win the day rocket round. Ten questions for some fairly quick answers. You ready for this one? No. (laughs) You don't get a choice. Uh, Number one, what quote inspires you the most? Oh, I, okay. Uh, One is um, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. And I think that was Henry Ford. Henry Ford, yeah. I actually heard another one the other day, which is, I'm not a quote person, but there's three. The other one is, um, uh, I'm not who I think I am. I'm not who you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. And I can't remember who said it. It might be Rumi. It might not be, yeah. but it, it speaks this idea that so many, and it's not a good one. So many of us think uh, we care so much about what I think you think of me. Mm. And so I act in a way that I think you might think is nice. And it's just social media, you know, kind of, it's all about social media. I think Yeah, that's an interesting one. And then the other one is, I just heard this the other day. Um, what Harry says about Sally says more about Harry than it does about Sally. Yeah. Uh, I've made up those two names. Uh, anyway, I love those quotes. <laughs> I love it. Number two, morning coffee or evening wine? Morning coffee. Number three, what's one bit of advice you'd give your 18-year-old self? Uh, uh, make a list of things that make you happy. Number four, what book do you gift the most? Um, uh, the Dr. Seuss, uh, what's it called? Um, the one, oh God, it's, uh, I don't give it enough because I can't remember the name, uh, (laughs) that and Le Petit Prince, the the Little Prince, uh, two kids books and they're amazing. Oh, what's that little, I should know more of the Dr. Seuss books. Oh, it's so good. It's about this like little thing. I don't even know what it is. Uh, uh, don't worry about it. It's a good book. (laughs) (laughs) Number, uh, number five, was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? Uh, a vulnerable. What, what? Hang on, I need to process what that means. Yeah, was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? Uh, well, I think like curiosity and my just curiosity and 
I think has become my superpower. Yeah. I used to get really fearful of, of things and I used to hide and now I'm just like, okay, what's that? Yeah, yeah, to open up that kindness with everything else that you do, which is great. Number six, what's one thing you've learned about failure? It's great. What a learning tool. Mm. Yeah. Number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be? Oh, uh, oh my younger self, maybe. Mm. Mm. Good answer. Number eight, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business? Maybe your business partner. <laughs> yeah, he's good. Uh, I, I mean, my laptop's pretty handy what, on that. Um, oh, my gosh, we use Slack. Uh, uh, Slack, I guess. Number nine, share one thing on your bucket list. I <laughs> know you've got- I've got a ton. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot there. What, what else can I tell you uh, that, that I want to do? Is there a big item that you, that you really, really want to tick off that you haven't done yet? Well, they're all really big for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to do an Olympic ski jump. Uh, I want to- that, one, that actually scared me reading that, that you want to do an Olympic ski Yeah, well, ski I can't jump. ski, which is the, a tricky part. Although you don't really have to ski, you just have to be able to, you know, land. In fact, you don't even need to be able to land. Yeah. You don't need to do much for that. So it's actually quite easy. Yeah. Yeah, I just need to just do it, really. <laughs> and number 10, what's one thing you do to win the day? Uh, I, I do like a little morning dance, uh, which I like. Uh, I surf. That, that that makes you feel good too. Yeah, plus the morning coffee helps too. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are a bunch of ways to connect with Seb and we'll link to all of these in the show notes. You can follow him on Instagram at Seb100Things. Grab a copy of his book, 100 Things on Amazon. I can highly recommend that. And check out his website, 100things.com. Again, all of that and more will be linked in the show notes. Seb, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, mate, thank you so much. It was great. Well, if you enjoyed this episode with Seb, leave a comment on YouTube with your favorite takeaway. And if you want to get access to episodes like this one as soon as they're released, hit that subscribe button. Win the Day with James Whitaker is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever you listen to podcasts. That's all for this episode. Remember to get out there and win the day. And maybe you're going to win the day by crafting your own 100 things list. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always. Always.